This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Welcome to episode 31 of Talking Dirty over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking a little bit like a patchwork blanket this uh, this drizzly spring day. Uh, we've got Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, thank you very much for that patchwork. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> All right, Fanny in the Fair Isle. Over in Cambridge, we have Thordis Fredrickson. Actually, look, lovely sunny smile on this, as you say, dreary, dull day. Yeah, it's not been the best day to be in the garden, but I'm fairly certain we all have been, including our guest, who is someone we are so excited to bring to the podcast. We've mentioned you so many times. We've talked about your methods, but we just uh, are desperate to hear more about them. It's Charles Dowding, who is a leading authority on No Dig. I don't think anyone listening or watching uh, this podcast needs that explained to them. And a writer, a teacher, increasingly of online courses. You are an incredibly busy bee, Charles. Yeah, thank you, Thordis. That's a very nice welcome. And in fact, I was out this morning um, doing some work, the photo shoot, the first photo shoot of the year with Jason Ingram and Kerry Thomas, because I'm doing features for Witch Gardening Magazine. And it's a very nice, in this lockdown times, you know, it's nice work to have where you can chat with people. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing a huge amount online and it's going just so strongly. So much interest on YouTube and Instagram, particularly really nice audience on YouTube of gardeners. I, I actually really enjoy the conversations we have and from all over the world, it's so international. And, you know, through the medium of the internet, uh, I can teach far and wide. It's yeah. just incredible. And you have been uh, prominent in this field for ages. You know, what was it 1983 really that you've you know, sort of been this authority on No Dig yeah. since then? But how yeah, the that, world that was my first back at garden. How the yeah. world has changed since then that now you can reach hundreds of thousands of people with YouTube and Instagram. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I remember in the, in the, I had funny I've had Jeff Hamilton in the garden in 1988. He came for a. They did a whole program of Gardener's World on my garden, but they weren't talking about the no digging at that time. It was all interested in organic. And so anyway, we discussed that. And then I got commissioned to write the pieces for Amateur Gardening magazine by Ian Hodgson, <laughs> who was editor in those days. And uh, that was my first entry into sort of mainstream journalism, if you like. But other than that, one had no means to contact many people. <laughs> And now the world is at your fingertips. And there's yeah. an, un I suppose it's unsurprising really that the appetite for no dig is so big because it's sort of no dig, more, better produce. Who wouldn't want less work for better results? But I don't yeah, think. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. But it's a good headline. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, I feel like I've been, I've been saying this for so long and nobody's really listened until recently. And, and, you know, you can, it's the same story I hear from people on allotments. You know, they, they'll say they, they've got these beautiful no-dig allotments, no weeds, and people will walk past and just make a comment like, oh, you need to dig it in, you know, that kind of thing. There's a kind of mindset you've got to really chisel away at, but it, it, it is happening now. Um, but, yeah, it's nothing like as obvious as you show someone a good method and they will automatically accept it. No, that's it took true. a lot of convincing. <laughs> 
A few podcasts back, we caught up with an amazing soil scientist who tried to explain some of what's going on in the soil. Alan, I know that your mind was blown by kind of understanding in more detail something that you work with every day. And there is so much going on in the soil, Alan. I think it was not just um, understanding. It was actually having my sort of feelings um, backed up, if you like, by science. Because I'm completely, um, um, I'm an ignoramus, really, when it comes to horticulture. I mean, I'm self-taught or granny taught me um, <clears throat> and all of that kind of thing. And you just get a, I think you get a natural feel for what is good. And, you know, tramping about on the soil and chucking it about, turning it over, chopping it up and all the rest of it. Um, if you actually sit and think about it and with a modicum of science, and I mean a real modicum, because that's, if I've got any, that's all I've got. Um <laughs> But it does actually make sense that you don't spoil everything all the time. And, you know, we'll have this annual thing once a year. I remember grandfather used to go out and in those days they double dug. Oh, <laughs> again, twice. Yeah, exactly. Oh child. You see what I mean? So, yeah. and, you know, and you're chucking the soil, you're chopping it about, you're letting the frost get at it and all of those kind of things. When really it would probably been far better left alone. I, I'm working with a scientist myself. I've got one coming down there every month to do analyses of my soil here and, and compost and wood chips also and comparing the dig and the no dig. So we're trying to get a bit more understanding and get some numbers on it. Like Alan says, you know, we're so intuitive. For you, it, obviously there is a lot of intuition involved. How did it all come about? It was wanting the most nutritious food and then my first step to create my first garden was to use the farm rotavator and I rotavated one and a half acres and chopped all the soil up and killed the weeds and then I shaped up raised beds and they were beautiful so I had an acre and a half of these beautiful beds all clean and I thought what am I going to do you know traditionally I would have rotavated again or then I'd have lost my lovely beds. so I, I needed to work out a way to keep my beds basically and and that led me into a bit of reading I came across Ruth Stout you know this American lady who mulched with hay and so I bought lots of old hay to mulch with uh, copying her method and then the first plantings I made the next spring a lot of them got eaten by slugs and I thought <laughs> hang on a minute why is this happening she didn't say anything about slugs in her book and it turns out she's from Connecticut which is such a different climate to Britain like we've just talking about today you know the the soft rain and she so she didn't have to worry about slugs so she mulched with hay worked really well for her and I realized it wasn't get, never going to work in Somerset at least where it's so damp so then from then on I've developed more mulching with compost and really that's it you know it's, it's been refining the details if you like uh, and and not mulching with anything undecomposed because of slug habitat and I also, I never have wooden sides on my beds, so they're open-sided. That also reduces slug habitat. So it's working out all those things, preventing pests rather than coping them with them when they arrive. And it's it's just gone from very strong from there. And the big one is weeds. You know, when you don't disturb the soil, like Alan was saying, you know that that massive upheaval that you, we inflict on soil. If, if well, if you're a digger, you do. You know, it, it, the soil has to recover, and one of the recovery mechanisms is weeds. So if you're not doing that you also just grows less weeds and many no diggers are commenting on that that makes so much sense <laughs> yeah it's great isn't it another little thing i was just say is that first of all something else you you've made me realize i mean i know this i hadn't thought about it and i hadn't had somebody like you charles to suddenly bring it to the fore and that is that lovely little snug area you get between the edge of the raised bed if you've got an edge to it and your <laughs> compost 
and at the edge there where it really remains quite dry and sometimes relatively open. That's an ideal place for all these marauding mollusks to hibernate, to lay their eggs and do all the other kind of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, edges and paths are something that I talk about increasingly because they tend to get overlooked. You know, people talk about beds and all that, and that's nice. But the like you say, the edge, there's a lot of things going on there. That, uh, also pathways, yeah. um, especially I think people coming from ornamental gardening, they're thinking more in terms of gravel paths often. And, you know, that's the worst thing you can do in a vegetable garden for two reasons. One is it's not adding any goodness. And the second is that it's difficult to weed between. And if you get, when you don't have edges, I mean, sides to your beds, the plants can root much more easily into the pathways. So the pathways become valuable rather than just kind of dead soil you're walking on. So that's something I've flagging up so that people value their paths, you know, value their past soil. Uh, maybe have the path slightly narrower. If you don't have wooden sides, you don't need such a big wide path because um, you can sort of part of use over the bed, if you like, and the wheelbarrow, you can even put the wheelbarrow legs on the beds, that's fine. Um, it, yeah, it all just links together really nicely. I think what's interesting is that people are possibly drawn to you because of a no dig sort of headline yeah. banner but there is so much more to it. And in the end, it becomes this lattice work of, yeah. of advice, really, of things that you've picked up by just gardening for years and learning what works. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I'm happy to hear you say that, actually, because that's, that's pretty much a nice summary that <laughs> Nodig is the starting point, And then you, you leads to so many other things. <laughs> and it, and it, I find it interesting too because I'm known for no dig like you know I have a PR lady um, Emma Mason who does great work and bringing out this online course how to grow we're calling it it's the first 15 uh, because there are 30 vegetables and they're too many to go in one course so the the first course is the first 15 and Emma's way she phrased it was she she put the title as how to grow no dig veg and I said to her no Emma it's not you know come on it's not specifically about no dig but she was using that from her point of view as publicity. And I was like, people know you for no dig, so we should put that in. But I, I just felt it was a bit confusing because it's it's basically how to grow vegetables. <laughs> Whether or not you know dig, the same methods apply. The, the, the difference is only that it's a lot easier because you're not doing specific cultivations, if you like. Whether you're growing carrots, potatoes, beetroot, it's all the same. And also what it's led me to with no dig is because you're getting the biological activity really high, that unlocks a lot of fertility possibilities if you like which mean that you don't need to think in terms of heavy feeders and light feeders so whether you're growing carrots or potatoes or lettuce the soil preparation is the same so in my course I don't mention that side of it at all and it you know does it is quite funny when I look at some textbooks sometimes you see all these prerequisites like how to grow carrots you need a a loamy soft soil um, free draining a ph 7.1 7.2 you know it's all quite specific (laughs) And carrots are light feeders, whatever, you know, so um, heavy feeding compost makes them fork, blah, blah, blah. And none of that applies anymore. So it's very simple. And, and that's something I'm really pushing. And I think it's helping beginners to get in because we need a lot of beginners now to get growing vegetables. Yeah. I mean, Alan, you've spent decades te- teaching people, trying to tell people through the radio, through television, through articles. So many people, that barrier to gardening and to getting gardening is this sort of mystery that surrounds it and everything seems so complicated. And Alan, you've spent years trying to break that down for people as well. Well, it's trying to demystify things. But just going back to what Charles was saying, I think no good, no dig, I mean, is associated with you. I mean, it is, it's, it's almost across your forehead, I have to say, Charles, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but it, is, it is so important because it means that 
immediately, I mean, if, we, if you start off the, the a sentence with no dig, you'll immediately know what you're talking about. Um, if you just talk <laughs> about growing crops and, and all the rest of it and all this lovely food that you produce, um, people will probably assume if you don't tell them that you're a no dig man, unless they know the name Charles Dowding, of course, which they should do by now, um, but they're probably going to assume, oh, this is another lesson in how, when do we dig? When do we do this? When do we, you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. But yes, I have spent ages trying to demystify things. Um, right. the, you know, the, there's so many rules that, I mean, if, if you take, if you, if you read an elementary gardening book, it's full of, well, you do this now. Will you do it now if, if you've got the time to do it? If you do it two weeks time or two weeks early, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and I'm a great uh, advocate for doing things when, uh, doing jobs when you think about it, because if you don't do it, then you probably won't do it at all. Brilliant. Um, and, and in actual fact, all of the things that we do or we have to do, they'll all catch up with each other in the end. And so, you know, we'll all be the other thing I try and say about people when they're growing, especially vegetables. Don't sell the whole packet, because how many of you are in the house? You know, <laughs> you don't need three rows of cabbages, for goodness sake. <laughs> if you dislike cabbages, don't grow them. But, you know, there is that, that sort of society of things. And I think people have this uh, kind of this feeling that they're going to eat much more than they actually will. Mm. Um, and you look at the way people change today. I mean, you know, years ago, a traditional plate of country food would be meat and two veg or three or whatever. Um, today, the way people use their food is much more incorporated fruit, fruit, um, fruit, the vegetables and salads in with the whole thing. So um, some people think it looks messy, but I mean, that is the current way of actually uh, younger people thinking, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> younger than I anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm really excited by the, the, you know, the amount of young people coming into gardening now. Uh, yeah, me too. Like Mr. Generation, and, and that's a great audience if you want to explain things, because I find it's actually much easier to teach beginners than gardeners with some experience because they have stuff to unlearn. You know, you really do this, whereas a, a, a new person, I mean, like rotation would be one that I mentioned where, you know, the, for traditional gardening, the four year rotation has become almost gospel. And from my work here, just trying out a few things really, you know, I've realized that it's not the case. And also again, when it comes back to no dig, because if you don't disturb the soil, you're maintaining a much higher level of health. So. You know, that's one of the traditional arguments for rotation is to reduce disease. So, yeah, the, the, the possibilities are really exciting. And I think if you getting people excited is, is so key. You know, when you're saying about demystifying and um, not getting the people slaves to the rules, then, then they feel they can experiment a bit. And that makes yeah. it more fun. They're more yeah. likely to carry on. It's, it's yeah. a bit like the gardening world catching up with the cookery world. You've got people coming through and, and sort of departing ah. from recipe books and sort of try a dash of this yeah. and a pinch of this. Yeah. Yeah, what I like to, the way I'd like to phrase it is that I'm teaching limits, if you like, not not rules. You know, the, the, the perimeter you can go to, but there's lots of freedom within that. And I, I feel like we've, we've got, you know, excited and, and talked about all kinds of things. I suppose really what I should ask you, maybe should have asked you first, is if you had to sort of explain a few of the, the basic ideas around your method of growing, what are they? Okay. Um, well, leaving soil alone as much as possible, so that undisturbed, that allows natural processes to work. And, you know, some of this I would take back to Victorian Britain. I, I feel in gardening horticulture, there's way too much reverence for the Victorians. 
not too sure why <laughs> but you know so if you just say we're doing it a traditional way copying the victorians you know i've had this discussion with westin college for example um sarah and jim who are really into no dig in a personal way but they were saying the college is based on victorian you know rules if you like and so we've we've got to cultivate the soul that kind of thing it's, it's a slave to a tradition so with no dig you're, you're just thinking more what what is natural and, and just working out how you can do that with Starting out no dig, it can be difficult because you've got to get rid of weeds. If you're starting with a weedy plot, and how do you do that without digging? And no, there's no need to remove the turf or anything like that. But it is cut. That's where cardboard. I mean, you know, that's probably wasn't around for the Victorians. So um, brown cardboard. Some people worry about the glues and things in cardboard, and I don't really know. I've done, investigated as much as I can. I saw a study from Stanford University which found that. Fungi in the soil actually eat glues, you know, they positively enjoy them. Well, I don't know if they phrase it quite like that. But there are possibilities to um, get rid of weeds in very natural ways. And you only need to do that once. Um, you know, this is where I find actually teaching can, can lead you up into difficulties, because then some people seem to think that you have to use cardboard every year. And you don't, you know, it's just an initial one-off phase. Get rid of the weeds and then no more cardboard after that. So it's, it's quite a minimal dose. Um, and, and a slightly hard dose of compost at the beginning, maybe, um, two, three inches, five, seven centimetres. Depends how, how much weed you've got, how much compost you can get hold of. But it's it's a one-off using a, a larger initial dose. And then going forwards every year, I'm putting on now on my beds about one inch, three centimetres, something like that, of compost to maintain the biological activity. Think of it in terms of not bringing in nutrients so much as stimulating soil life to provide the nutrients which are there already. Most soil is actually in pretty good state nutrient-wise. Not all, but most. So it's you're enabling Enabling, I think that's a very nice word. It's very descriptive of what you're doing. Um, oh. And, you know, it, the, the other thing that it tells me is that the soil itself is a living thing. Yeah. Um, enabling it, it to, I mean, it does things, it, it, it makes things, it grows things, it grows nutrients underneath the soil for, for our plants to, to take up, um, which is the most important thing of all. That, going back to the Victorians, that, that's exactly the opposite place they were coming from because their framework of thinking was very much about, you know, bending nature to their will. And yes. I feel that that's what we've inherited unconsciously, you know, that attitude. Well, it's strange where that kind of thought came from. But my, my mind immediately goes back to a plant called, I don't know whether you know it, Giles, but Cardiocrinum giganteum, the Himalayan <laughs> lily. And I mean, people that got very rich very quickly over, over a period of say 10 or 20 years in the North, mill owners and people like that, they used to have enormous estates. They, they built enormous houses and they also paid for people to go on um, plant hunting exhibitions around the world. They funded them. And for that pleasure, they, they then had some seeds of various things when their plants, when they came back. One of them that came back was Cardiocrinum giganteum, the Himalayan lily. Um, and they had great competitions between, you know, mill owners, what mine's bigger than yours, who could grow the tallest one. And so they, they went to enormous lengths and they used to dig pits. And in the bottom of this pit, probably six, six feet deep, two meters deep, they would send their garden boy off to the butchers to get all the offal and guts of the animals that, that you know, weren't oh, used. And oh. that, in the bottom. <laughs> that is mad. Yeah. And then he planted a muck manure and everything else, and, and then they planted their cardiocrinum bulbs. Um, they didn't realise that it didn't make that much difference, really, to, to the, how big they grew. What affected them was was in that top, yeah. I, I suppose, 
30 centimeters of soil really um, yeah. and their climate because the climate is the most important thing to cardiocrinos because they quite like it cool they like the cool if you like of the north um, and you know nothing to do with all the awful. detritus that went with this <laughs> it was awful awful <laughs> Very little on your no-dig techniques then, Charles. I, you know the traditional thing with runner beans, it reminds me of, where you dig a trench and you put in all your kitchen waste over the winter, blah, 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 and then a bit of soil back on top, like your runner beans. And I was teaching at West Edmonds, actually, as it happened, and there was this old guy, one of my audience, and, and he said at the end, he said, you know, it's so interesting. I, I've dug my trench for 30 years for the runner beans, and this winter he's getting a bit older. He thought, oh, I'll leave it and I'll try your way, no-dig. And he just put some compost on top and he said, you know what, those runner beans, they were just as good. <laughs> so what have I been doing with this? I, you know, I think he got old enough to sort of leave that behind. But there, there is an element of if you do a big change like this, it's, you, you start to question what you've done before. And I can see why that, that could cause some difficulties for people. You know, it's a bit like saying I was wrong to do that, but I wouldn't put it like that. I put it more that we all work within a framework of, of common beliefs and. For me, the pleasing thing now is that the framework of common beliefs is changing. And, and there is much more acceptance now for, for no dig, for working with nature uh, rather than trying to impose ourselves. And that's exciting because, you know, then you start to investigate more yourself, um, look around. Like Alan was saying, you know, you go out in the garden, you start to wonder things. Uh, let's get a bit more wonder and curiosity back in there. Yeah. Find out more yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if you look at the RHS, you know, and their traditional, their, their original founding belief or, or um, attitude, it was all about, you know, understanding nature and, and, and applying some science to that. And we could get back to that more now. And so organization as large as the RHS, I think they get they get very constrained by the, the sort of <laughs> belief system that gets gets in place, hasn't it? And it's difficult then for new 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 ideas to come through. So okay. I mean it's it, it, have you heard about the new garden at Wisley? Just amazing. You know, um, it's new edibles garden um, designed by Anne-Marie Powell. And Sheila Das, the garden's edible gardens manager there, is implementing it. It's no dig, no chemicals, no fertilizer. You know, real groundbreaker for the RHS. Exciting. It's a groundbreaker, not just for the RHS, but for us too. Um, <laughs> because, because, you know, this is the kind of thing that people want to hear about. They don't want to be blasting the atmosphere with all these horrible um, insecticides and fungicides yeah. and uh, any yeah. other sides that you, you used to be able to use. I mean, we're all trying to do as, as, as less little of that as possible today. Um, yeah. But you know, it is, oh, I, I, I think there's it, two words, um, convention and tradition. And it's breaking both of them. Yeah. Um, and that's the important thing because, I mean, everything is, everybody is steeped in tradition a little bit, especially the older members of the, of the gardening fraternity, if you like. And convention, you know, that's the way my father did it. So it didn't do him any harm. I'm going to do the same. <laughs> you know, that is an interesting word, though, because in farming, in the farming world, if you're an organic farmer, okay, you're organic. Guess what the opposite to organic farming is? It's conventional. That So farmers who use chemicals, uh, who use GM seeds, even anything, you know, unnatural, I would say, they're called conventional. And to me, that seems completely wrong. But I think that organic farming should not have accepted that they'd be allowed to use that word. Because if you look up conventional in the dictionary, the, the definition is normal and natural. How can this be? Farmers using chemicals are allowed to basically call themselves natural. And, and I think it's a, a, an example of the power of language, which needs, you know, we all need to be very aware of this. If we're not careful, we get sucked into a sort of 
a way of thinking um, defined by the words, which is misleading. I mean, organic for me, it should be the normal, natural. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit of a red herring there. But. I think farming years ago, they had a spray for everything and they had a spray for, for things that didn't even exist as long as they didn't care what. <laughs> As long as it, you know, don't kill my crop that I'm trying to earn money out of, but you can kill anything else. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, times are changing. Now, uh, yeah. we, we heard you talk about your new online course. You are incredibly busy because you're filming left, right and centre and you're doing photo shoots and everything and actually trying to garden in amidst all of that. So we don't have you for very long. Um, what did you bring for some show and tell? Because this is something we've got into a habit with all of our guests. They bring something along. What did you choose to bring? Okay, my salad leaves I picked this morning. <laughs> also, actually, an interesting aside to that is they're in a, this polythene bag, which is compostable. And I'm just trying out a few. They're still not, you know, I think it's something that still hasn't been fully worked out. Because the problem with compostable bags, when you put wet produce in there, you know, they work really well for, say, a magazine or something, because it's dry in there. But with a wet leaf like this, or leaves, they're it'll initiate the composting process already before maybe the customer gets to use them because we're selling these. So I just you know, a few there just to show you, um, you know, examples of what we're picking at the moment. The, the, so there's my leaves. Um, they look good enough to eat so that's <laughs> Daytonia, winter pantheon. Uh, there's a small leaf of chard. I did a salad tasting with Raymond Blanc a few years ago, and when we got to the chard, he almost spat it out. He said, oh, that is chard. <laughs> Not impressed. Um, that is lettuce, my favourite variety called Grenoble Red, Rouge Grenoble, it's from the Alps, very winter hardy. And then there's some mustards. The mustards are really good at this time of year and they get amazingly big considering the, the winter season. That's one called Red Dragon, which chugs away just <laughs> all the time through the winter. It's a pungent taste, so you, you need some of the softer flavours like um, endive is here, kale, that's a lovely one. I'm sure you know that red Russian kale. You know, you this will make a big leaf if you want for cooking more in the summer season, but in the winter, it's great for salad. Um, I think I've exhausted the possibility. So oh, there's a bit of endive, frizzy endive. It's not a high producer in the winter, but it looks so nice and it brings that nice bit of bitterness to the leaf mix as well. And bitter flavours are interesting because in Britain, they're not, not highly rated, but uh, just a few in a salad mix I find is good. So that that's, this is my show and tell if you like <laughs> so this is you know mid-february and we're picking that in the greenhouse so these these the plants that produce these were sown last september so it's a lot of thinking ahead and being organized uh, transplanted october after you clear your tomatoes you could get anyone who's listening to this who's got a bit of greenhouse space you know you can produce this kind of thing through the winter um but you need to remember to sow it in september you you could also grow these in a box on top of staging you know if you've got staging that's not using anything in, in the winter empty staging put some in a mushroom box filled with compost and grow your salad I think um people might not know that you know you have all these courses but you also have a lot of sort of free material on your website sewing guides plenty of, of information for people to just go and read your blog posts and sort of get some of this knowledge out of your head and into theirs yeah absolutely I do a monthly well twice weekly now um, update which is there on the website sewing timeline so that tells you what's so when all through the year um seeds and varieties that's a page all about um recommended ones i found good varieties of vegetables recommended seed suppliers so yeah there is a lot of information there so, and on youtube obviously it's all free <laughs> <videos>. <laughs> how has it been uh, obviously you, you spent so many years 
gardening, learning how to do this, being a market gardener. How was it when you started being filmed and talking to camera and, and having to, to do that side of it, which now must, must feel like second nature? Yeah, good. Yeah, that's all right. Um, when I started, it was not second nature, that's for sure. And I remember the first <laughs> afternoon, it would be fascinating to have had a camera on me, actually, because uh, I had to do quite a few takes with that very first. If you look at the introduction to my first video, which is called No Dig Abundance, and we filmed that September 2013. And I was working with a videographer who was a professional, really, and, and he, he was coaching me as we did it. And he said, yeah, so look, you've got to introduce yourself and you look a bit cheerful, you know, and, and just be as natural as you can and... and he, he said, get some more energy into it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been picking up all those tips going along. And now I, I, I could still improve. Obviously, one could still improve. But I love the feeling that I know my viewers are there. And I know they're enjoying it. And, and I, I find I can imagine them listening. So, you know, that, that's a nice feeling. And people say, how come you, you look so happy? And I, I don't know. I think it's because I can actually imagine them hearing me. So I hope there's a few people hello, <laughs> listening to me now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're a good thoughtist. You've got a nice, cheerful manner about you, and it, it really counts, doesn't it? Well, we, we have also worked out that, um, I don't know if you're wildly um, acquainted with RBF, resting bitch face. So we have to do a lot of work on this podcast to not have that. <laughs> we get really into listening to our guests. You can't, you can't sort of get too serious looking or you look very angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I've had that too, like these photo shoots I do with Jason and Kerry, and Kerry's always saying, you know, come on, you've got to be smiling much more than you, even though you would think could be needed. You're <laughs> feeling good about it, so but you've, you've got to double that smile even more. And it, <laughs> yeah, it's something to learn, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what this podcast is all about, trying to learn as much. The other thing it's all about is plants, um, and obviously we get to see all of your fabulous produce on your Instagram. Do you find you are all about the edibles? Do you ever stray into, you know, more flowery ornamental sides of things? Yeah, well, let me just get one, actually. <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> okay, sorry to go I'm sure some of you all know what that is. So, loofah. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. It Wee. was actually the plant. One plant was given me last um, April by Steph, Stephanie Hafty, who raised the seedling. And this one is not the most perfect specimen because it started to rot a little bit before I managed to get the skin off. But I use that whenever I have a shower or bath. And I find them brilliant. You grow them like a cucumber. It's like a cordon cucumber, so grow it up a string. And then I got four. This was the smallest one. And I gave the other three away and made nice Christmas presents. Uh, you just need to work out how to get the skin off. Yeah, Lufa, have a go. Because um, we're coming up sowing time, not yet. Uh, I would say early to mid-April undercover with warmth for planting out undercover once you're sure there's no more frost and it's really warming up and grow it like a cordon cucumber up a string. Uh, I can't remember if I side shoot, a little bit of side shooting. Um, yeah, there you go. You've got a video on how to remove the skin on your channel, haven't you? You're absolutely right. Thanks for remembering that. Yes, there is. Instagram and YouTube. <laughs> we'll try and link yeah. to it so people yeah, can go straight there. Nicola, my PA, came out with the phone into the garden. We just did it, just a two-minute quick video for Instagram. I'm blown away by how much viewing. That that was the most popular video I put on Instagram. <laughs> Something not even edible at 100,000. I think I know why, Charles, because quite a few of us have, have grown loofers, um, which is wonderful until you try and get the blessed skin off. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. That was that thing everyone's Googling. How do I get the skin off my loofer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, Alan, what, what's your FOMO, incidentally? What thing are you looking forward to growing? I mean, aside from loofers now, because obviously you'll be wanting to have another go at loofers. Well, yes, I've got loofers on my list, actually. Um, and I've also got uh, winter green salads and kales and things like that. Note myself so in September, because um, our vegetable greenhouse, where we grow uh, cucumbers, tomatoes um, and chilies, and whether, people, whether you should grow them all together or not, I don't go there because <laughs> we do and they work. Um, but I mean, I've got space in there and it just, it just looks so appetizing. And I love what Charles actually said, that that little note of bitterness, you don't want too much of it, but just that little note of bitterness that suddenly wakes your palate up when you're eating something which you think may be boring because lots of people think green salad is boring and then they go, go oh, what was that? <laughs> yeah. And you have a little hint of heat from mustard as well, don't you? Which is, yeah. just makes that. Do you know what one, one I'd recommend for summer more is the buckler leaf sorrel. Do you know that one? Buckler. Yeah, I do. B-K-L-E-R. And, and it's perennial. Um, and it, the sorrel leaves, it makes, they're, they're small and round. They're the ones highly esteemed by top chefs to make soup. But I think they're actually much too precious for that. So we, I put them in my yeah, salad. Better eaten raw. I would talk to you. Flomo. Go back to Flomo. <laughs> <laughs> I want to plant some more fruit trees. Um, and I just sort of think that, that, that I'm investigating this because um, a couple of years ago, there's a pear that's endemic to, Nor to Norfolk, which you eat completely uh, straight off the tree. And it's called the robin pear or red robin. I, th I think it's just known as the robin pear. And it's, it was raised in Norfolk. And I managed to find some robin pears that had been, um, they're manufactured as fastidiate trees. Now, whether they're grafted onto a, a something, I don't know. But anyway. And I want to grow more fruit trees. So there's two or three ways of doing this. There's cheating, if you like, and getting fastidiate varieties, which grow tall and narrow in, in column shapes. Or there is the idea that possibly you could do, and Charles, you will know this because you've been to West Dean, worked there and seen the wonderful trained fruit trees that they have there. You know, you get the blacksmith to make you a, a conical frame, shall we say, like a Christmas tree, and then you train an apple to it. And I remember going to West Dean and seeing Sarah and Jim when they were there. Um, they've retired now, but I mean, I saw them when they were there and we just had just fascinating discussions about how the heck you train these. And because the wonderful thing is that for um, West Dean, you go there and you'll see the finished article. That's not what you'll get to start with. Um, so, you know, right. you, you, you look it up and see how to do it, but that's what I would like to do. And so that crosses, I think, the border from, um, shall we say, from food production into the ornamental garden and so on and so forth. And I do fully believe as well as, I know that we're talking about um, Charles Dowding's No Dig and all the rest of it, but I fully believe that, 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 that all of our gardening is, can be integrated into the whole. So that, you know, our flower production and all the rest of it, we can, we can do exactly the same thing with a No Dig yeah. method. We don't need to rip totally. the soil apart all the time. Yeah, uh, and also, you know, that was fascinating word you used. You said the boundary between um, food production and ornamental, and I would say that there doesn't need to be a boundary, you no, know, quite because... The one thing, the, the Nudig vegetable garden can be so beautiful, you know, as people are noticing on my Instagram account, you know, that the most likes are the ones, just the most beautiful, and you know, the colours of all the vegetables and well tended when they're super healthy and few weeds, which happens very easily. So you, you get the beauty into your food production. Um, but also the, what you were saying about the training there, uh, the way I do it would be for the espalier, just using canes and I tie the branches to them as they develop so you know you don't yeah. have to have that really expensive structure in the first place although it's very good to visualize and you can see then how clearly how to do it 
But I would urge anyone who wants to make a fancy shaped fruit tree just to have a go, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, bamboo canes like that, which you can you can run from because you say you get a six or eight foot cane and, and the middle of it is level to the trunks. So you've got three or four feet either side and then just tie the developing branches to that. And that's one way to get your espalier branches, if you like, the arms of the tree. Um, and that's how I've done it before anyway. So, just and if you that. buy an established or semi-established espalier, that's what you'll get. You'll get the 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 vertical canes and the horizontal canes. Yeah. Um, and then it's just really elementary. But I mean, there's there's some marvelous books and some marvelous tutorials to look to see how to carry on with it and to, and to perfect it. And if you want to make a Christmas tree, just, you know, have a center stand, center stake, and then eight foot canes radiating out tied at the, at the center like yeah. a cone. You're yeah, there. exactly. Yeah, that blows my blacksmith theory, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a nice tip. You know, it's been a really it's been a really nice thing on this podcast to be able to bring together the edible and the ornamental because we do talk. I mean, Alan and I, we are a little bit obsessed with, with flowery things. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed talking to you both, I must say. And, and you know, particularly Alan, I've been aware of for a long time and never to actually have the chance to, to chat is, is fantastic. It is a wonderful thing about Zoom, isn't it? And the internet. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thanks for that, Charles. Very kind of you. And I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that you know anything that we can do, you can do, I can do, we can do to to open people's eyes to to, to um, produce food and uh, nutritional yeah. food to the best yeah. of their ability is a, is nothing but a good thing. And at this totally. time, we've we've had one lockdown. We've got another one. Um, people are going to want something to do, and it's you know it's a wonderful thing to start doing. And I think yeah. you've only got to look at it's not it doesn't just feed the belly; it feeds the person. And I mean yes, the soul, yeah. the person. It's it's just fantastic. So thank you very much for sharing your, your well, your innovative ideas with us. It's it's lovely. What are you off to do now, Charles? Oh, uh, well, I'm going to answer a few emails as usual. But I'm I'm writing my the final lesson of my third course, which is about how to grow tomatoes. Brilliant. And they can find it all on your website. Thank you so much. Maybe we can find a little window in your diary another time, but it's been such a... Yeah, I'd I'd love to carry on having a chat. Thanks. (laughs) Happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.